He speaks to us today whenever we read the Bible. It's not just a record of God speaking back then. It is God's vehicle for speaking to us as well today. It's not the only way that God speaks, but I certainly believe it is the primary way that God speaks to us as his people, as his church. And so we spend some time each week just opening the scriptures, wanting to listen to the voice of God and hopefully by his spirit and in his grace, he's going to speak to us afresh this morning. We've been walking through the book of Mark together and we're in chapter 10 today, so you can go there. Um, but um, let me tell you a story quickly before we get there. Is I try at least a couple of times a week to do some exercise. Okay, I'm not the fittest man in the world. I know that's hard for you to believe whenever you look at me, but I'm not the fittest man in the world. Um, but I do like to keep myself ticking over. And so a couple of times a week at least, I like to go for a run. And um, a few weeks ago, actually, it was Selena's husband, who's a bit of a runner, I'm told. He shared with me a run, a nice route. Um, that he used to go on when he lived in the same village that we do. And uh, since then, I've been trying to take this route a couple of times a week. And it really is a brilliant run. It's beautiful. It's through fields. It's through forests. It's over rocks. It's along the coast. I mean, it's a stunning, stunning route to take. And um, th there's a problem with it, though. The first half is brilliant because it's all downhill, <laughs> right? It's all downhill, and so you're running, you're thinking, I've got this, I'm the fittest man in the world, sign me up to the next Ironman competition. You feel that, and you get halfway, and then you have to turn and start coming back towards home. And the problem is, when the first half is downhill, it means the second half is uphill, right? And so while the first half is just brilliant, easy, and absolute breeze, the second half of this run is brutal. <laughs> I mean, it really is brutal. I just about managed it. In fact, no, that's a lie. That is a lie. I didn't manage it this week running all the way. I did have to stop for just a few moments, but I haven't managed running it the whole way yet. But the second half was brutal. And this week, just a few days ago, I was running back. And when you're in the middle of the race, probably many of you know uh, what I'm talking about and you can resonate to it. Um, and there's this weird thing that happens whenever I'm running especially when it's hard. This weird sensation. You're kind of running, and my lungs feel like they're collapsing in on themselves, right? And my legs are just burning. And like I'm just thinking to myself, I hate this. This is so painful. I just want to collapse on the floor and die. Anyone ever been there? Yeah? In the middle of a run? You've all been there, right? For sure. You've all been there for sure. You know, he says, I hate it. I just, oh man, please take me now, Lord Jesus, please. This is just too painful. Right? But there's this weird thing that happens because on the one hand, I'm hating it and want the Lord Jesus to take me home. But yet, weirdly, at the same time, I love it. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like, you hate it, you want to die, but yet at the same time, it's like, but I love this and I feel really alive. I just can't, I can't work that out, how it can be possible that, you know, in the very self-same moment, you feel like 
you want to die, but yet you feel like you're more alive than you've ever been. I mean, that's just a weird sensation. And we all have moments like that, don't we, in life, where we experience what seem to be opposite sensations or contradictory emotions. You know, we've been here for almost a year now, and uh, I hope that one of the things you've discovered, as you've got to know us, I hope one of the things you've discovered is that my wife is way better than I am. Agree? Thank you. She is. Bob, it's steady, Bob. Don't have to be so enthusiastic about that. <laughs> no, but she is. You know what I'm talking about, Bob, don't you? She's way better than me, right? And she's amazing. There's no one on this planet who is better than my wife, right? I love her with my whole heart. She is the best person in the world, and she's my best friend, and I'm so thankful to God for giving her to me. But here's the thing. We've been married 15, nearly 16 years, and occasionally we disagree, okay? <laughs> the proper words. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I've got to learn. Maybe a few more years before. Occasionally we disagree. Very occasionally we strongly disagree. And uh, every now and then we do. Forgive me. Forgive your pastor this morning. Every now and then we have a full-blown argument. Sorry, is that all right? Is that okay? We're all human. We know what that's like, right? Very occasionally. Yeah, no more than twice a week. <laughs> occasionally we do. And it's weird, those experiences. They're not fun, right? They're not fun. You all know what I'm talking about. They're not fun. But we can be in the heat of battle, my wife and I. And it's weird because on the one hand, I'm thinking, ah, you are really frustrating me right now. I can't believe that you don't see things the way I see things, right? I can't believe that you don't realize how wrong you are about what we're arguing about, right? And, and like, it's intense, and you think, you know what, sometimes it's so intense, you just think, you know what, I don't actually really want to be in the same room as you right now, right? No, don't worry, we're all good, all right? We're all good. Sometimes it feels like I don't even want to be in the same room as you right now. But it's weird because when you're in the heat of battle and you feel like that, it's weird because on the one hand, I don't really want to be in the same room. But yet on the other hand, I think to myself, there's no one I'd rather be in a room with right now. <laughs> Sometimes you think, I don't even really want to have to look at you right now. But yet at the same time, I think you're still the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. It's weird, right? We have these moments in life where we experience what seem to be contrasting or even contradictory emotions or sensations in the very same moment. And we can't really work out what it's all about. It's called a paradox. A paradox where two things that are opposite are both true. And the thing about a paradox is that the Christian life is full of them. I think perhaps the most explicit description of Christian discipleship, 
paradoxes comes from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. It's up there, 2 Corinthians 6, sorry, on your screen. This is what Paul says about his experience of following Jesus. He says, we are treated as imposters, yet we are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. This is a life full of paradoxes. Paul says we're sorrowful but full of joy. We've got nothing but we've got everything. We're dead but we're alive. The Christian life is full of paradoxes. And we don't quite know how they are true, but they are true. In fact, the, the Bible is full of paradoxes. I don't know if you've ever read the story of uh, the exodus from Egypt, I'm sure you have. But God wants to set free his people from slavery. He wants to set them free from the tyranny of this evil and brutal ruler called Pharaoh. And so God comes to Pharaoh and he sends 10 plagues on Egypt. And each time is an opportunity for Pharaoh to release and set free God's people. But it's really interesting because every time God sends a plague, it says something like this. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. In other words, he didn't listen. He didn't listen to God. And then the next plague would come. And then it would say something like this. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then it would say, another plague come, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then another plague would come and it would say, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so by the end of the story, you're asking yourself, well, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it Pharaoh or was it God? And the answer is yes. It was both. It's a paradox. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart, and we don't quite know how that works out or how it makes sense. All we can do is just say, well, it's what the Word of God says, so we just have to believe that both are true, even if it doesn't make sense in our mind. Both are true. The Christian life is full of paradox. The Bible is full of paradox. Jesus, the character and the person of Jesus, in many ways, is full of paradox. Is Jesus fully God? Is Jesus fully God? Yes, thank you. Cool, I'm glad we know that. Is Jesus or was Jesus fully human as well? Yes. Of course he is. But how does that even work? How does that make sense? How can somebody be fully God, but yet at the same time fully human? We cannot work these things out. They are a paradox. And the Christian life is full of them, the Bible is full of them, and the person of Jesus is full of them. And in the passage, that, well, in the verse even, that we want to reflect on together this morning, I think we discover another one of these paradoxes when it comes to the person and the character and the ministry of Jesus. It's found in John chapter 10. And this may well be the most famous verse or the most well-known verse in the book of Mark. I'm sure you've all heard it. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even 
the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to take a few moments just to reflect on that one verse together this morning. But a little heads up is this morning I'm going to pull that verse and we're going to look at it in isolation. But what I really want to encourage you to do is sometime this week is to go back to this verse and read it in the context of what's happening at the time. You're going to see if you do that, that Jesus makes this statement in response to a discussion, a fairly heated discussion that the disciples were having. And when you read it in the context of the discussion, this verse, these words of Jesus become challenging in really deep and powerful ways. But this morning, I just want to take the verse in isolation and try and look together at what this verse teaches us about the character of Jesus. But it's probably best as we read the Bible, not to take verses in isolation. It's probably best to take them in the context of how you find them. But this morning, we're going to take it in isolation and ask the question, what is this teaching us about the character of Jesus? Really well-known verse, really famous. Maybe many who don't even or haven't ever read the Bible have probably heard this verse at some point on some Occasion, And it's really easy just to read this verse and not be impacted by it and not take the time to reflect upon it. But as is always the case with the Bible, when we slow down, think deeply, reflect consistently, we discover so many profound glories in every word of scripture and I think we discover one here Jesus says the son of man came not to be served but to serve now the son of man I don't know if you know but the son of man was Jesus's favorite way to refer to himself you read through the Gospels, whenever, you, whenever we notice somebody either talking to Jesus or talking about Jesus, or even if you read the rest of the New Testament and some of the apostles are writing about Jesus, the most common way that they would refer to him would be as Christ. Remember a couple of weeks ago we learned that Christ is the Greek way of saying Messiah. And so whenever somebody else other than Jesus is talking to him or about him or writing about him, the most common way that they do that is by calling him Christ or Messiah. But whenever Jesus is talking about himself, whenever Jesus is referring to himself, his favorite way to do that is by calling himself the Son of Man. In fact, there isn't any occasion where Jesus explicitly calls himself the Messiah. 
Lots of other people call him that, and he never denies it. <laughs> he knows that he is the Messiah, but when he's talking about himself, his favorite way to do that is by calling himself the Son of Man. So what does the Son of Man mean? Well, if you just want to translate the meaning of that title, it essentially means human being, Son of Man. But if you are familiar with the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, as the disciples and the Jewish people at the time would have been, they would have been very familiar with the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The Son of Man didn't just refer to a generic human being. The Son of Man referred to a very specific character that appears in the Old Testament. The Son of Man appears specifically and most powerfully in the book of Daniel. We're not going to turn to it right now, but you can do that when you go home this week. The Son of Man is a character that appears in the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel, as you know, is a famous Old Testament character. One of the heroes, in fact, of the Old Testament. He was um, someone who God used powerfully to speak his word and to uh, fulfill God's purpose. And Daniel is living during a time when Israel were slaves in a foreign nation. The people of Israel had been exiled into Babylon. And it's during that time where Daniel lives. It's during that time where God uses Daniel. He's living in Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 7, we are told that Daniel has a prophetic dream. A prophetic dream. In other words, God gives Daniel a dream that reveals something to him about what God would do in the future. A prophetic dream. Daniel is given one of these dreams, and it's described for us in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. Now, we're not going to read it now, but if you read it when you get home, be forewarned that it is a terrifying dream. It is bizarre. In this dream, Daniel sees a series of terrifying monsters <laughs> coming up out of the sea. It's bizarre. Lots of bizarre imagery, lots of burning eyes and horns and all the rest of it. You probably know what I'm talking about. If you don't, read Daniel 7 when you get home. But in the dream, Daniel sees a series of beasts. And the beasts in the dream, they symbolize all of the rebellious, wicked, violent rulers and kings and empires who are opposed to God. The beasts represent these empires that are opposed to God, that unleash death and destruction and violence on the earth. That's what the beasts in the dream symbolize. And in the dream, after Daniel has seen these terrifying beasts, he sees a vision of God on a throne. 
and the throne is on fire. And out of the throne, we're told, comes a stream of fire. I mean, this is dramatic imagery that Daniel is witnessing in his dream. And after Daniel sees the throne of, with God on it, with fire issuing from it, we're told that the beasts, the wicked, rebellious empires and rulers who unleash death and destruction on God's good world, they are destroyed. And so in this dream, Daniel sees the victory of God over all the wickedness of human history. And after these beasts are destroyed, we are introduced in Daniel's dream to this character called the Son of Man. The Son of Man. And this is what it says about the Son of Man in Daniel's dream. It will come up on your screen, just a few verses. Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions in the dream, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This is where the phrase, the son of man, originated. It's this character here in Daniel chapter 7. And so whenever a Jewish person, the disciples and others at the time of Jesus, heard the phrase, the son of man, this is what they were thinking. They were thinking about the one who is given dominion over all things. They were thinking about the one who is given an everlasting kingdom. They were thinking about the one who rules over all things. They were thinking about the one to whom every nation, people, and language would one day serve. This is what they were thinking about whenever they thought about the Son of Man. It was this character who would rule with glory and power and majesty. This one to whom every person on earth would come and serve. And so, you can imagine, if this is our backdrop, you can imagine how bemusing, how surprising, how confusing it must have been to hear Jesus say, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We read that and we skip over it fairly quickly, but to the disciples, that would have caused a real head mess for them. Because in their minds... And according to Daniel's dream, the Son of Man was someone who would be served by everyone. But yet here's Jesus saying, no, no, no. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
And so the disciples must have been confused. It must have messed with their understanding, their categories. How is it that the Son of Man, who we're told, would one day be served by everyone? How is it that the Son of Man actually is a servant, not the one who is served? But this is what Jesus is saying. And so what we're discovering Again, in the person, in the character, and in the ministry of Jesus, we're discovering a paradox. Jesus, the Son of Man, who rules over all things and is served by everyone. Jesus, the Son of Man, who comes to serve in humility everyone doesn't seem to work but this is what Jesus is saying about who he is he's saying I am the son of man who will rule in glory but I'm also the son of man who will stoop in humility this is profound and we see this don't we as you think about the story of Jesus we see these two dimensions these two aspects of his character revealed in so many different ways Remember a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time in Mark chapter 9 thinking about uh, the transfiguration, that moment where Jesus was on a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and we're told that his face was transformed before them, and he suddenly began to shine like the sun, like blazing light. There on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, they saw Jesus full of glory and light and majesty and wonder. They saw the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the one ruling in glory and splendor and might and majesty. That's what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. The one who is worthy of all praise and all honor. The one to whom every nation, every language, and every tongue will one day bow down. That's what they saw on the mountain as Jesus' face shone before them. But yet there are other moments in Jesus' life. And I'm thinking most specifically right now about John chapter 13. where Jesus doesn't seem to reflect the imagery of Daniel chapter 7. John chapter 13, Jesus is having the last meal with his disciples. And we're told in that chapter there that during the meal, Jesus uh, took, got up from the meal, wrapped a towel around his waist, and what did he do? <laughs> he washed the disciples' feet. And so we, we've got something like the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is shining like the sun in all of his glory. But yet we've got another moment in the life of Jesus where he is on his knees serving the people. And so we have in Jesus this paradox as he attaches this title of the Son of Man to himself. We have this paradox where Jesus is revealing that he is the one who will truly rule over all nations and everyone will come to serve him. But yet at the very same time he's saying, but yet I am also the one who will stoop down in humility and serve. This is a stunning portrait of Jesus. The Son of Man who reigns in glory, but the Son of Man who serves in humility as well. 
And that's who he is. Even right now, today, that's who Jesus is. He is the Daniel 7 glorious figure who is ruling and reigning over all things, the one to whom all the hosts of heavens bow down and praise and worship consistently and endlessly. He is that son of man, but yet at the same time, Jesus is also today the son of man who wants to serve you and me. He wants to serve us today. He wants to serve us. He wants to say, listen, what is it that you need today? How can I help? What burdens can I carry of yours today? How can I give you strength today? How can I bind up your wounds today? What is it you need me to do for you today? Jesus is at the self-same time the king of glory who rules in majesty and splendor, but also the humble servant who comes minister to the needs of his people that's who he is he's the son of man in glory he's the son of man in humility and it's really important friends that we understand both of these dimensions of who Jesus is it's really important that we hold in our minds and our hearts both of these dimensions of who Jesus is because you know friends as Christians what are we called to do right as Christians we are called one to worship Jesus right amen Amen, amen. You all agree with me on that? Fantastic. We're called to worship Jesus, but also as Christians, we are called to live like Jesus. Amen, 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 amen. Fantastic. We're all in agreement. We are called to worship him, and we are called to live like him. And in order to do both of those things, we need to hold in our minds and our hearts both of these dimensions of who he is. Think about it, would you, with me? Think about the revelation of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. King of glory and splendor and might, ruling over all nations forever. Every nation, language, people and tongue coming to worship him and serve him. Yes, I can worship that figure. Of course I can worship that figure. But if that is all Jesus is, I can't be like him. How could I ever be like that? I mean, that's impossible. He is like endlessly, infinitely greater than me. How can I be like that son of man? But now think about Jesus stooping down to serve and wash the feet of his friends. I look at that and go, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can, I, I can do that just like, I can copy Jesus, I can follow his example, but if that's all Jesus is, he's a good man, but he's not worthy of my worship. But you see, Jesus is both the king of glory reigning in splendor, but he's also the king of humility serving in compassion and so as Christians we're called to worship him and we're called to follow him and that's only possible when we hold in our minds these two dimensions of who he is we worship and we follow we worship and we emulate his example. 
And that's what we're called to do as Christians, to worship him and to be like him. And we mustn't lose either one of these revelations of the character of Jesus. We mustn't. We must hold them both in our hearts and in our minds. And if we don't, then we're going to struggle to be or become who he's called us to become in the fullness of what he desires. Are you tracking? Yeah? Are you with me? I hope, I hope you are. Sometimes when you talk about Jesus, it can get a bit scrambled in your head, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But here's what I think. All that I'm saying, all that I've shared with you so far, here's kind of how I think it should begin to play itself out in our lives. We, we know Jesus is the Son of Man who reigns in glory and splendor and majesty, but we also know that he's the Son of Man who serves in compassionate humility. We know both of those things are true about Jesus. Now, here's what I think it should look like, at least in one way in our lives. We gather together on a Sunday. We come together. We come together around the person of Jesus. We gladly acknowledge and confess together that Jesus is Lord. Amen? We gladly confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. We lift our eyes. We remember who he is. We begin to sing our hearts out. We sing to Jesus. We sing about Jesus. We sing for Jesus. We sing about his glory and his majesty and his wonder and his wisdom and his sovereignty and his power. We stand in awe of Jesus. We lift our hands to Jesus. We bow down before Jesus. Why? Because he is the son of man who is ruling and reigning over an everlasting kingdom forever. And so we gather together, we strike up the music, and we sing to Jesus the Lord. But then the music stops. Then we stop singing. Then Pastor Phil stops rabbiting on. And we turn our minds and our hearts from Jesus enthroned in glory. And we turn our minds and our hearts to Jesus serving in humility. And so we stop singing to him and about him and we turn to one another and we say, how can I serve you today? We say, what is it that I can do today to follow the example of my humble king? And we stop singing about Jesus. We turn to one another and we say, 
How can I serve you today? What is it that needs doing? Is there anything that I can do to serve in the same way that Jesus served? What is it that I can do this morning? Is there anything that needs doing in, their play, in this place? Does the floor need hoovering? I'll do it, no problem. Does the toilets need cleaning? I'll do it, no problem. There is nothing too low or too menial for me to do because if my king and my savior is willing to stoop down on his knees to clean the feet of his dirty, dusty disciples, well, then there is nothing too low for me to do as well. We take our eyes off of the sky. We turn our eyes towards one another. We take our arms out, down, out of the air, and we turn our hearts towards one another. We stop singing about Jesus, and we start serving one another just like Jesus. This is kind of what I feel like it should look like for us as Christians. We are called to worship him, but we are called to live like him. So yes, we come together. We sing with all of our hearts. We stand in awe of him. We are amazed and humbled by his majesty and his glory. But yet at the same time, we don't consider it too much for us to get down on our knees and begin to serve one another just like Jesus did for us. You see, he's the Son of Man reigning in glory. He is the Son of Man serving in humility. Both of those things are true, and both of those things should be reflected in our lives as we seek to be the people of God that he is called to be. People who worship him, people who serve him, people who stand in awe of him, people who follow him, people who honor him, people who copy him. That is who we are called to be. And that's why it's super important that we understand that Jesus is both the Son of Man of Daniel 7, reigning in glory, but Jesus is also the Son of Man, serving in humility. So, how might that look in your lives this week? How might that look in your lives this week? I want to leave you to reflect on that in your own time. Let's pray together.